All right, so today I'm excited because we get to start a new series called This Is Us. And anyone like that show? Okay, it's a great show. If you haven't gotten into it, you should. Uh, but unlike the show, today what we're going to be focusing on is less about sibling drama and more on family dynamics and the values that make us who we are. So for the next, next journey here, for we're going to split it, in two, or split it in two parts. For the next three weeks leading to uh, Christmas, I'm sorry, Christmas, Easter, <laughs> we're already there. No, to Easter and celebrating the cross, we're going to really look at the things that Jesus said were most important, okay? Today, we're going to start with the greatest commandment, the thing that was most important. And then after that, we're going to look at six weeks of uh, what it means to be the fellowship, what it makes us this local body, and what specifically sets us apart. So, I'm excited about that. Jesus said more than anything else in his ministry that the kingdom was most important. He talked about kingdom more than anything else in his ministry. Matthew 6.33 says, he said to seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. He also went on and said in Matthew 11.12 that since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and only the forceful lay hold of it. And what he was saying was this, that there is a... um, that John the Baptist was the precursor or the Elijah to come before the Messiah. And since that day, the kingdom has been forcefully advancing. We've all been intentionally waiting for the second return of Jesus, correct? But as participants and followers of Jesus, we live kingdom now. And it has to be more important than the things that the world tells us. It has to be more important than the altars we built in other places. I want to highlight this today by looking at exactly what Jesus said in his discussion with some religious leaders and then in the life of a man that I believe personifies all our humanity. So when I do this and I say discussion, what I mean is how many of you are married? How many husbands have ever had a discussion with your wife? Okay. So uh, in Matthew 22, the Sadducees have come to Jesus and they are blue-collar magistrates who believe in mystical. They believe in a resurrection, okay? Unlike them are the Pharisees who are your white-collar professionals, experts in the law, and uh, really uh, the religious elite. These two have otherwise nothing in common, but both are considered leaders. The only thing that they have that draws them together is a mutual hatred for Jesus, Okay? And once the Pharisees had found that the Sadducees who tried to ensnare Jesus were silenced, they step up and say, okay, let us have a shot. In Matthew 22, verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked the question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Now, in Jesus' response, he's simply just quoting the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus. It's actually a prayer that would be recited by these very Pharisees three times a day religiously. They would literally pray this prayer three times a day in their regular life, everyday life. So you might assume that when he says this to them, they may have this feeling or thought that they're good, that they're okay. But they weren't good. Because, see, Jesus' response actually spits in the face of their religion. And he responds with the very same disdain that they have for him. But he doesn't have disdain for them. He loves them. Every single person you know or have ever met or has ever walked the earth was created in the very image of God. 
He loved them. And he desired to be in relationship with them. But he did disdain something. And that was their religious and empty practices. He said, you say this three times a day and you do it religiously. It's become a ritual. But it's empty. There's no heart behind it. So when I say love the Lord your God with all your heart, it, that part of you is not engaged. In fact, he goes on and he, he talks about these religious leaders and he'll challenge the people to not follow their leading anymore during the rest of his ministry. He says, beware the leaven or the sin of the Pharisees. In verse 27 of Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of all death and every kind of impurity. So what is Jesus saying? That we are called to love him with all. With everything. In everything we do and in everywhere we go, we should take that as an opportunity to worship. We're to love him with all our mind, all our heart, and yes, all our strength or our will. And if I were to take a poll of us all today, I could ask like, how many of you would say that you love the Lord your God with 100% of your mind? I'm not asking that. Hands lowered. You love him with 100% of your mind. Maybe 100% of your will. I'm submitted. I'll do whatever he asks. But like 99% of your heart. Now, I will ask this question. If it's that good and those are your percentages, that 99%. Does that mean we're following with all? This means no. So let's say this together. If 100% of my mind and 100% of my will, but 99% of my heart, am I following the Lord with all? A little louder. We need to be able to recognize that. Understand that. Every one of us fall into this category. Every one of us are in relationship, and it's not condemning. He is gracious and allows us to gain relationship with him, but that relationship takes continual investment, and he desires to be the sole object of our affection. Anyone ever been in love before? Anyone ever had a, a, a significant other that you were pursuing, and you couldn't, you couldn't stand to, to not hear their voice last before you went to bed and the first one you heard when you woke up? just wanted to be with them. This is what Jesus is saying. I just want you to want to want to be with me. The thing that leads us to not give all is fear. We hold up or restrain ourselves due to uncertainty and where to lead. But if he's leading, if Jesus is leading and even religious professionals who don't believe what we do about Jesus will still call him blameless. In other religions, they still give him that much respect. We here call him perfect. Because he was the spotless lamb that took everything for us on the cross. How many of you would rather have you leading your life or perfection? I know it sounds really simple, but it's all-encompassing and very difficult to do. Because we live in a time when our insecurities are pronounced and our unhealthy relational practices have literally shaped an entire generation of people, lending us to trust our self-protective tendencies over the truth. We listen more to lies of the enemy. And you do know that he's the father of all lies. That's what Jesus called him. In fact, in John 10, he says he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy each of us. Then we do the truth of the one who sees in us what we even cannot see in ourselves at times. 
which leads me to the, the example I want to give. There's a man in Scripture that I believe both personifies what, what we deal with, but also because he got over himself, saw God move in a way that was extravagant and historical, and we still celebrate it. And his name was Gideon. In Judges 6, and I want you to know that the Hebrew word judge means deliverer. Not only deliverer unto justice, but deliverer from bondage. And that's the role that Gideon was actually about to play. In the time that Gideon steps onto the scene and becomes pronounced, you have the people of Israel have chosen yet again to be infidelous. And they have chosen to worship the pagan gods of those around them versus be completely in with God. And so they have one foot in with God and one fit in with Baal. And Baal was the god of natural disasters. So if anybody was going to be over like the waterfall that year, rainfall that would make sure they had a lustrous crop, they started to believe that it might be Baal. And so they were in one, one foot in, one foot out. Okay? So because of that, um, God had handed them over to their pagan enemies. God had handed them over to those that were around them, namely Midian. And for seven years, and this is the seventh year that we're about to examine, a prophet said it would stop after seven years. But for seven years, the Israelites have tilled the ground, they've sowed, they've watered. But every year at harvest, Midian will fly in and take all their crop, ravage all their livestock, and even take their women and leave nothing for the Israelites. And more and more Israelites are dying off every year. And this is the context by which we enter this passage. It's war season. It's wartime. Right now, Midian has come in and they're ravaging Israel at harvest. And it says in Judges 6 verse 11 that God comes to Gideon. It says, The angel of the Lord came to him and sat under an oak tree in Ophrah, which is, belongs to Joash the Abyssalite. His son, Joash's son, Gideon, was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you valiant warrior. Stop. Now, war is happening, and, and when you hear the word warrior, how many of you think that the warrior is probably on the front lines? Right? On the front lines. Where was Gideon? Gideon, battle is yonder, like over here. Okay? You all know what yonder means? I'm not from Texas, but... Yonder, right? Battle is yonder. And the warrior is over here with his back turned trying to keep his. Everything that he's worked for for that year, he's not going to have it stolen this year. He's decided he's going to put his hands on it and he's going to keep his. And so he is on his father's property underneath an oak tree working on hiding it all. And keeping it for himself. And God taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, you valiant warrior. The one on the front lines. Valor is a word we don't use today. It's old in English and I love it. It means bold, brave. It means proud. It means someone who has a chest. You know what I'm talking about? So you have this this coward called brave by the Lord our God. This coward caught in a cowardice act in the midst of battle is called brave by our God. Understand? Okay. God often sees in us what we even don't see in ourselves. And I love the exchange because Gideon turns and says to him something that is really important. He starts with the word please. 
But you don't need to interpret please as if he's being polite or a question. I have a grandmother who used to look at me and does this to me to this day. She'll look at me and go, Justin, you know, I had a lot of friends growing up and she used to do this to me as well. When we would mess with my grandma, she'd be like, please. Anyone know a grandma like that? Please, child. Know that? This is the way Gideon's responding to God. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned and said, Go in this strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. So, please, Gideon turns and berates the Lord with excuses and God says, Hey, go in this might. How many of you have ever looked at a preschooler who's given you every excuse in the world? Some of them are terrible. And you go, keep doing that. You commend them. Hey, great job. Hello? You know what I'm talking about? Gideon comes back and says, hey, look, something that every single person in this room probably identifies with, I know that I do, and that is this. If God is in this, then why is all of this happening? Why can't I seem to get ahead? Why am I buried by my circumstances? I can't, I don't know where the next dollar's coming to pay that bill. Why am I seemingly drowning if God is with us? And where are all the miracles we talked about? They talk about it in church. Where's all the delivering that happens that is all, all encompassing the gospel? Where is all of that stuff? And Gideon just gives an honest response. And he begins to give excuses for why he is where he is and how he feels. And God says, go in this might of yours. And I believe I want you to understand why he says that is this. God turns and says, if you would trust me with just a percentage of the ferocious fight you have for yourself, you might see your entire world change. If you would just trust me with a a portion of the fight that you just gave to me, If you would just trust me with that, you might see everything around you change. Your life and the lives of those in your life. What Jesus says is greatest English lesson, right? Jesus said, seek me with all. Not a percentage, all. Was there anything greater than greatest in your English classes? Or your math classes? No. So when Jesus, the one who was perfect, says this is greatest, we need to listen because it is truly the greatest thing. Gideon was the least qualified of all the candidates for said, for said position. Let me read what he even, he even tells the Lord this. Listen, he says, I am sending you. Then in verse 15, he turns to him and says, Please again, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. God turns and says, but I'll be with you. The Lord said to him, you will strike down Midian even as if you were one man. Now, you need to understand what what the Lord is saying, and you need to understand what Gideon's saying. Let's start with Gideon. Gideon says this. Gideon is 
the, the son, the youngest son, and we talked about birth order a few weeks ago, birth order, birthright in Judaism, youngest means insignificant, okay? He's the youngest son of Joash, who is the high priest of Baal. He's the one who literally learned, taught everyone to worship and look in another direction from God. He is the high priest of Baal, and he is found by God on Joash's property, hiding from battle. And God comes to the youngest son of the one who turned everyone's heart in Manasseh away from the Lord, and he says, you're going to be the one to do it. So Gideon goes, how in the world, Manasseh's the weakest tribe, my father's literally the high priest of Baal, he's the one that did all this, and I'm the youngest in my house. You need to understand, I'm not the guy. And in a world where we put so much uh, importance on degrees and achievements and, and successes or experiences, you need to understand we're not much different than they were. They counted all our accolades as value. And see, those sometimes get in the way of recognizing that God himself values us despite what we thought we could earn. We just sang about that. But see what God was about to do, and you'll read it, and I encourage you to do it. Go, go on a couple chapters. You're going to see what, what God does as he delivers all of Israel, who has 33,000 men lined up for battle, ready to do war, against an army that it says is countless. Hundreds upon thousands. They are vastly outnumbered from day one. But God tells Gideon, there's too many here. And so what he does is he thins the pack and leaves him with 300 of the least qualified, the least alert, you could say the idiots. He leaves him with 300 of the least trained or ready, and they ask, they're asked to line up behind the least qualified, and guess what? They're going to overthrow hundreds upon thousands without ever raising a spear. It's unbelievable. And God says why he did it. In Matthew 7, he says he did it so that no man here could turn and look and say, I delivered Israel by my own strength. Why does God do that? So that we can't take any credit. Why does God use the least qualified to do the greatest things? So that nobody here can take any credit. Because God desires that we would give him our all. And nothing should rival him being the object of our affection. The Westminster Confession says it like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper wrote it in a great book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a, it's a book about missions that he wrote years ago. And he starts with this opening line, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is simply a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And all God is asking for is this. John 15 says that no greater act of love than he who lays down his life for his friend. Jesus gave his all for us. The greatest command requires that we do the same for him.
But because we're in relationship, he gives us the choice to. He lets us choose to lay it down, to be next to him, because we want to. Second point is this. As Lord, and he can't be Savior unless he's also Lord. Amen? When you can't save yourself and you depend on someone, they become your boss. He's not Savior to you if he is not simultaneously Lord. As Lord, Jesus must have license to dispel the world's lies and to have his way in us. We've got to be able to give him license to say the things to us that he sees that we don't see in ourselves. And we have to trust that he is sovereign over our circumstances because he alone is God. Amen? We're never going to experience life abundant like he promised until we allow him to do that. God sees in us even what we often cannot see in ourselves. And he's pulling for us. He called the coward brave. But no minimum investment has ever yielded a maximum return. It's on the screen. Let me say it again. No minimum investment in your finances or relationally has ever yielded a maximum return. If I say to you, I'm going to be a doctor, and we've talked about this before, but I want to remind us. If I say I'm going to be a doctor, you assume in your mind immediately that I'm going to school for a while, years even. And it's going to be grueling, and there's going to be hours and hours and hours of work, and I'm going to have to earn my way through it till I can finally operate on someone or have my way with them. It's going to take countless hours of investment, financial investment, and you understand this. In your mind, you have that capacity. But if I say, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to be just like him, I want to apprentice at his feet and be just like him, well, then show up every once in a while to church, attend life group maybe 30 times a year, and, uh, you know, put some money towards missions, and that, that should do it. Turn on a worship song every once in a while in your car. Flip it from everything else, and that, that should probably cover it, right? But, but then, when life happens, beg God to move. Beg God to come through like only God can. Beg Him to do what only God does when you give no other investment except in crisis. Anyone like me do that. Gideon saw God move in an incredible way because he surrendered as God lovingly and patiently walked him through his own doubt. Doubt is never a problem for God. You need to understand this. If you think doubt's a problem, read Job. Watch the righteous doubt God for 39 chapters, whether he loves him or even exists. And then God shows up in a miraculous way, and that's what we preach, that's what we celebrate. Well, we don't walk, we don't talk about Gideon's depression. We don't talk about Gideon's deep and dark and aggressive time where he wondered if God was in this at all. So know that doubt is never a problem. Staying there is. Staying there is a problem. We have to choose to grow. Relapse is a part of growth, but we have to choose to move through it and bust through it and let God say to us in our most cowardice of moments that we're valiant. He desires us to be on the front line when we're retreating with our back to war. We have to trust that he sees in us what we can't even see in ourselves so that ultimately he'll be glorified. You may be the least qualified in the room for the job, 
but you may be the right person for it. Why? Because God will show up and others get to see him on display because of your lack of qualification. You see, if we live restrained, ultimately restricted due to our fears and trusting God, then we continue to let death and the enemy win. As the church, we can't say that we're the church and do that. That's one foot in, one foot out. Revelations 3 said this, that um, I'd rather you be hot or cold rather than lukewarm. Because otherwise I'll spit you out of my mouth. He said, and again, seek me first and with your entirety if you want to have a relationship with me. But see, Jesus is always going to call us to action. He's going to call us to action that is often difficult and maybe terrifying. He did that in Gideon's life, and I'm just going to explain it to you. Here's what happens. If you read on in Judges 6, what happens is after this encounter with God where Gideon is ferociously kind of fighting for himself and God kind of dispels all that and says, I'm with you. And how many of you just want to hear God say, I'm with you? I know I do. And I want assurances of his presence with me. But then God looks at Gideon and says, it's okay. Gideon says, hey, well, if it's you, I need proof. Ever done this? Prove it. So he allows him to create a a meal under God's direction, and then God consumes it. And that gives him enough assurance to do what he's about to. God calls Gideon to tear down. Tear down every altar built to Baal, starting with his father's. He calls him to tear down the altars that were built to Baal, starting with his father's. Tear that thing down. And what he does is he says, go to your father's temple, his place of work, take it, tear it down, build an altar unto me and sacrifice unto me. Take the Ashura pole, that wood, and light that on fire unto me. Now, I don't know if you understand the, <laughs> the relationship of a Jewish son to his father, but you probably understand our relationships as parents and children. My daddy taught me to worship Baal. You're going to have to tear that down. My daddy taught me to do it this way. You're going to have to tear that down. Luke 14, 26 says, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And this was said by Jesus in a time that they would understand every rabbi who ever selected a disciple would leave their home and literally go live in that, that mentor's house. They would go be with their rabbi. So this was contextual. But what he says for us translates. He's saying your love for those who are most influential and closest to you in life must seem like hatred compared to your devotion to me. It must be so distanced that whatever I ask of you, even if that is to tear down your daddy's altars... You do it. So Gideon says yes without really knowing what he's saying yes to. Anyone ever been asked to do that? Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he'll bring it to pass. Now, I personally would love to reverse the order of this call by the psalmist. I, I personally always want to see God do it then I'll trust, and then I'll commit everything, right? 
But that's not how faith works. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Amen? So commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and then He'll act. So Gideon says yes, and he does it with fear. He enlists a group of men, and they go to the altar of Baal, and they tear it down in the middle of the night so that no one will see him. But the next morning when the men of Israel get up, they find this burned altar unto Baal, and they've heard that Gideon did it. So they show up at Joash's door. Listen to this. They show up at Joash's door, the priest of Baal, and they say, give us Gideon. He's torn down the altar, the Ashur pole. Give us Gideon because he is defaced Baal. He deserves to die. Joash, the priest of Baal, the one that's led them all to worship him, turns in Judges 6 and says, if Baal's a god, let him defend himself. If Baal is a god, let him defend himself. Why did God go to Gideon? Because he needed to. Why did God go to Gideon? He had to get into Joash's house on Joash's property in Joash's heart. He had to use his youngest son, the least of these. And when your son's life is on trial, all of a sudden you start thinking about the entire world differently. When it means the sacrifice of your own child, you all of a sudden go, hold up. And God comes to Gideon because he had to. And he gets Joash to say, if. And that turns his heart and it begins to turn the heart of the people. They line up behind the least qualified. 33,000 line up, that gets thin to 300 because the others were terrified. He said, if you're afraid, leave. And they did. But Gideon, and it's not like it changed overnight, man. You'll walk, read it. It's a great story of how God walks with him through every doubt, proving the fleece, proving it again, watching him graciously grow in his knowledge and devotion of the Lord. How many of you are thankful that God... Our God, the one true God, is a God of a million chances. And he proves that in Gideon's life. And he says, all I want is your all. All I want is to be the sole object of your affection. So no, no matter how difficult it is what I call you to tear down, just be willing to tear down anything that you've built up altar to that rivals your affection for me. And only you and I can know that. We don't get maximum returns on minimum investments. Jesus' very response spat in the face of our empty ritualistic practices. Even though we were saying the right words, the heart, the mind, the will was not fully engaged. And that's what God is looking for. And we've all experienced it if you've ever, at any point, been in love. Here's what I'd like to say today. I think that we would be entirely remiss to talk about what it means to commune with God personally and to follow Him into the most terrifying of actions, the most difficult of places, and to trust Him with our entirety communing with him at that level personally, growing, individually investing in this relationship, giving our very all, we'd be remiss to do that if we didn't see his invitation and accept it. You see, I'd like to reintroduce this morning something. 
It's not been here at this campus for a minute, but I want to reintroduce the Lord's Supper. I want to reintroduce the openness of the table of the Lord. Here's why. Because when you stand at that altar and you look at the very body that was broken, the bread which symbolizes his literal body broken willingly so that you didn't have to take it and he did that for you, and you consume that juice that represents his blood that literally covers all your sin and your deserved punishment. You look at life at a place of enlistment. You come to the table not just with gratitude, but with one who is saying yes, without even knowing what you're saying yes to. It's one that says, I see your invitation to be in relationship with me and that nothing, nothing would stop you from doing that, even giving your own life. You gave it up willingly, hung naked, were beaten and suffocated on the cross for me. You willingly did that. And I come to this table in thanksgiving. But I'm not coming without being willing to tear down any and all altars that stand opposed to you and I, that rival me for your affection. I'm coming first, pinning those back to the very cross that you paid it all on, that I might be in life, to show you my devotion today is to give you all. So at this table, you've got cards. And I encourage you, I encourage you to utilize those for prayer requests, but also for this. I want you to list today the places that altars in your life have been built onto that rival the altar of God at your heart, that literally stand between you and him. They distract you from being completely devoted as God has called us to as disciples. And so, and when you write that down, I want you to pin it to the cross. I want you to put it back there, nail it there again, because he died for it, not just yesterday and not just tomorrow, but today. And today you have an opportunity to practice safely responding to the Lord and worshiping in all things in a place where we all said he's our Lord. He's boss. And whatever he asks me to tear down, I'll tear down in a place where we'll celebrate it. Because let me ask you this. Do they celebrate these kind of responses in your office or in your school? Do they celebrate you being willing to tear down any altar and be willing to be made the fool in places that are public where his name is defamed all the time? This is just a safe place for his church to practice in a time of response for where he's going to call you to go tomorrow and every day after. You pin that altar to the cross. You lay every prayer request there as well. And you come to the table enlisting, saying, you know what? If my body be broken, if my blood be spilled, so be it. I'm enlisting in the kingdom. And I want nothing more than to seek that first and give him all that I have. Why? Because in Acts 1.8, when he said, you'll be my witnesses, that word is better translated this, my martyrs. If my reputation be obliterated, so be it. Because I trust you. If, if the enemy comes in and ravages all that I've worked for, so be it. You called me valiant when I was in the height of cowardice. When I was retreating and my back was to war, you put me on the front line because you saw in me there was a warrior. And I could do more with your strength, not with my strength, with your strength. 
I could do more than I ever thought possible because you saw in me more than I ever could see in myself. This morning, we come saying, God, we trust you with all of our mind, with the entirety of our heart. And with the submitted will, we say, we trust you over the world. Please dispel all the lies. Show us the altars that need to be torn down and we'll make a maximum investment because we expect a maximum return. We want to see you move in our midst the way that you moved in Gideon's day. How many of you want to see that in your lifetime? Whether in your relationships, in your home, or in your church corporately. Today, I desire that. But we have to respond in a way that's appropriate.